If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Hello, I'm Rob Attar and this is the second History Extra podcast for May 2012. Coming up this week, we have... So the whole war was completely unnecessary because where we start is where we end up. That was Andrew Lambert talking about the War of 1812. Your history, your identity, your uh, heritage has been recognised, so there is an element of uh, pride, uh, national pride and cultural and uh, historical pride that comes with it. And that was Kishore Rao discussing UNESCO World Heritage Sites. This podcast is brought to you from the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. There are more details of our latest issue and subscription deals on our website, historyextra.com. Of course, we're also available digitally these days. You can purchase our Kindle edition direct from the Amazon website, and our new iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. And if you want more information on the iPad edition, you can find it at historyextra.com forward slash iPad. Don't forget, we can be found on facebook.com forward slash history extra and twitter.com forward slash history extra. In our May issue, we've included an article by Professor Andrew Lambert about the War of 1812, a conflict whose 200th anniversary falls, unsurprisingly, this year. American historians have long claimed victory in this battle against Britain, 
but Lambert believes things weren't quite so clear-cut. I popped over to King's College London earlier this year to hear what he had to say. Most wars seem to have a name that relates to either the countries or the circumstances behind it. Why has this war just been named after its date? The War of 1812 suffers from a bit of an identity crisis because it breaks out in the middle of a much bigger war mm. and it's dominated by somebody who's not actually engaged in the war at all, that's Napoleon. Uh, it's a war which begins with Napoleon on the verge of achieving European dominion. He's marching into Russia. The Americans fully expect he will win. And at that point, the British will just have to give up. So why not pinch Canada while they're busy? Oh, and by the way, we can have Spain as well, uh, because we can take Florida. Uh, the Spanish are rather busy too. So it's a war which the Americans think isn't going to go anywhere. It's going to be a mere matter of marching, as President, uh, former President Jefferson says. And they assume that the British will not notice. And it's a war which is not caused by anything in particular. Uh, the Americans will tell you it was about impressing sailors and the orders in council which blocked their trade. But the people who voted for the war were neither seafarers nor merchants. They were, in fact, land speculators on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains. And what they wanted was more land, less Indians, and no Britons or Spaniards. Uh, so the war was a you know, an, an completely undisguised land grab. Um, the subsequent attempt by the Americans to justify it on the basis of British actions, which were entirely generated by the Napoleonic conflict, misses the point. If you look at the voting record, the people who vote for this war have no concern with the sea. So was America then really the instigator of this war? There's not much blame to be attached to Britain there. The British had no desire to fight the Americans at this time because they were very busy. Uh, the Navy was stretched fighting a global war against France and its allies. The Army was entirely committed to uh, the peninsula and the defence of the United Kingdom. So the idea of, of yet another war against yet another enemy was something that nobody in government uh, was in the least interested in. And the British had no ambitions on the American continent, which involved a war with America. All they wanted was to be left alone. Uh, what we now call Canada, British North America, as long as the, the Americans left that alone, and they left the West Indies alone, and they left British Atlantic shipping alone, then that was it. Obviously, nowadays we have this kind of special relationship between Britain and America, or so-called special relationship. What kind of relationship existed between the countries around this time? The Anglo-American relationship on the eve of the War of 1812 is very interesting because the people who are in the international section of the American economy, New England merchants, New York traders, ship owners, whalers, fishermen, they're entirely geared into an Atlantic economy which pivots around London. They don't want to go to war because they're making a lot of money out of supplying Britain with goods Indeed, Wellington's army is eating New England grain and using New England lumber to build its camps. Uh, so the British have no interest in fighting the Americans. Those people all vote for the Federalist Party, which had been led by John Adams. Um, but the Federalists were out of office. They were the minority party, and the Republican Party government of initially Thomas Jefferson and by 1812 James Madison based in Virginia and in the South and in the West was much more interested in questions of land and the creation of an American identity which was distinctly not British. 
many of the Republicans had uh, a great deal of sympathy for the, the French Revolution, and this had spilled over. Many of them were still quite sympathetic to the French, even though they were ruled uh, by an imperial tyrant, which was entirely antithetical to their political agenda. Uh, but they didn't see Napoleon ruling over the whole of Europe as in any way analogous to George III ruling over America. Uh, they sort of completely missed the, the logical um, dissonance of, of their position. Relations between the British and the Republicans were not good. Relations with the Federalists were excellent. And so Anglo-American relations depended on the colour of the government. And, and at the start of the war, what do you think America's prospects were for winning the war? Uh, when the Americans declared war, the only prospect they had of victory was that the British would be utterly incompetent, completely oblivious, uh, and would not make any attempt to defend themselves. Uh, they went to war on a huge wave of enthusiasm, entirely unsupported by military preparation. They hadn't bothered to mobilize the army. They hadn't spent any money on the Navy at all. In fact, they hadn't built any new warships, any new ocean-going warships, since 1800. So they went to war with the 10 or 15-year-old frigates, with an army which was only just assembling uh, and was relying on militia forces and, and local levies, because they expected the British wouldn't fight. So they were going to war on a bluff. And so when that bluff didn't pay off and Britain did fight... How easy was it for Britain to overcome or contain the American attacks? Mm. The British response to the Americans comes in, in two stages. The defence of Canada with the troops that are available in Canada, with the Canadian embodied militia, and in, very significantly both Anglophone and Francophone Canadians all fought together because the one thing that French Canadians and Eng English Canadians had in common was they did not want to be Americans. French Canadians were royalists, and they preferred King George to George Washington. So Canada defends itself with the support of a very small number of British regulars. Uh, very effectively in 1812, the two major American invasions are heavily defeated at Detroit um, and at Queenston Heights. The American army is driven back in confusion. The, the New York militia won't even cross the Niagara River into Canada because they say, look, we're militiamen, we only fight in our own state. Um, what's interesting is that the American government expected to win on land and had no real in thoughts of doing much at sea. They thought the Navy wouldn't do much, it was small, and the British would simply sweep it aside. Ironically, what happens is uh, General William Hull surrenders at Detroit, and the army is humiliated, and a couple of months later, his nephew, Isaac Hull, in the USS Constitution, captures a British frigate in a single ship action. And there are two more actions like this in which American frigates capture British frigates. And this is the moment when the British wake up and realize that actually they're gonna to have to do something slightly more about the Americans than just defend themselves. Because the American Navy turns out to be much more professional and much more skillful than the American army. Uh, the army is, is just incompetent. Uh, the navy is professional, but it's been very largely ignored because the Republicans are not interested in the sea, so they've not put money into the navy. In fact, they've taken money out of the navy for coast defences. And these American frigate victories in the summer and autumn of 1812 lead some in Britain to think that there's a major problem with the navy and the Navy is no longer what it was, the Americans have beaten us, there must be something terrible going on. 
The truth, of course, is slightly more complex. The American ships, the Constitution and the United States are much bigger than the British frigates they're fighting. They're one-third heavier, they have one-third more firepower, and they have one-third bigger crews. So essentially, if the Americans had lost, they would have been rank incompetence. And they weren't. They were good professional sea officers. Uh, the best Americans and the best British officers were really pretty much on the same level. What the Americans found in 1812 was that most of the ships they encountered in American waters were not the best of the British Navy, because that was deployed against the French. And so HMS Guerriere was an old French prize which was falling to bits, and it was on its way to have its mast replaced. It was in very poor shape. It probably would have been paid off. HMS Macedonian, which was captured afterwards, was commanded by an officer who was quite clearly both blind and stupid. He misidentified his opponent and conducted the most incompetent battle and presided over a thoroughly demoralised crew, uh, which is unusual. Uh, HMS Java, another very small ship, fought a, a very successful action, although it was defeated. Uh, it was so successful, and the captain, who, who was mortally wounded, did so well, that all the pictures of this battle are British pictures. The British celebrated this. This was a glorious defeat of a smaller ship by a much larger one. But the Republican Party, having got themselves into a war they couldn't win, uh, was desperate for any good news. So all of a sudden, the Navy became the poster boy of the American war effort. Uh, all the while, the real threat to the British was not the American Navy, it was privateering. American commercial vessels with a license to take prizes. And the Americans were very good at this. They had, had been very good at it in the War of Independence as well. Um, Baltimore, New York, Boston, Charleston, Savannah. These ports are turning out large numbers of armed predators. And so we get it. The real threat to the British in this war wasn't the invasion of Canada. That was blocked quite easily. And it wasn't the American Navy winning battles. It was the attack on Atlantic shipping. So how did the British deal with these sort of problems in the naval sphere? Yeah. The... War that the British have to win in 1812, right through to 1814, is essentially the Battle of the Atlantic. It's that Second World War campaign to keep the shipping flowing, to diminish losses suffered from predators, and ultimately to break the ability of the predators to be a threat. And the American privateers are operating in the same sorts of way that you see in the Battle of the Atlantic. They're unique craft, they're very fast, they're very agile, and initially, at operating against unconvoyed merchant ships, they're quite successful. So what do the British do? Well, we know about the Battle of the Atlantic. They form convoys. They escort the convoys. They use their intelligence to build up a picture of how the Americans operate. They put a close blockade on the American ports. And whenever they get the chance, they pursue and destroy the American vessels. And by the end of the war, a very large number of American privateersmen are at His Majesty's pleasure at the prison on Dartmoor. It's packed full of American privateersmen. So basically, you take the sailors out of American service and you put them in jail until the end of the war. Sailors cannot be replaced as easily as foot soldiers. You need trained men. So you lock up all of the trained predators and slowly this American privateering effort declines. Critically, it never gets to the point where it has a big influence on the insurance rate for Atlantic shipping.
that would mean that the people couldn't afford to send their ships out because the insurance was too high. And yeah. And the Admiralty is working very closely with Lloyds of London, the insurance market. In fact, it's a daily communication, organising convoys, making sure that everybody does as they're told. The Admiralty will punish captains who don't escort their convoys properly, and Lloyds of London and the Admiralty will prosecute and jail merchant ship captains who leave the convoy without authority. Several merchant ship captains are jailed for running ahead of the convoy because that makes them vulnerable. That leads to losses, that encourages the Americans. So it's something that really has to be stopped. And what we see really is the British slowly get a grip on the American Navy. By the middle of 1813, the American Navy has been defeated and is now blockaded. Uh, and the privateering threat is slowly ground down. So by the end of the war, the numbers of privateers have gone down very sharply. It's now only a very few very successful individual privateers commanded by a, a, probably 10 or a dozen outstanding privateer commanders. But all of the rest really have, have been taken out, blockaded, destroyed, captured. And is much going on in the land campaign while, while this naval battle is taking place? Yeah, essentially every year the Americans try to invade Canada. And there's a big American army forms up and they march. Uh, in 1813 they cross the St. Lawrence River and march towards Montreal and they're attacked and defeated and run away. Another force crosses the river further up and they're defeated largely by Francophone Canadians and this gives the, the French Canadians a, a battle victory which they can celebrate as um, very particularly that even the commanding officer is a Francophone Canadian. And so it, it's very much a national effort with a lot of British support. There's a, there's a kind of ongoing naval arms race on Lake Ontario which is the vital point of the whole land campaign. And that is never resolved because whenever the British have a new ship the Americans won't fight and whenever the Americans have a new ship the British won't fight. And so they just race each other. By the end of the war the British flagship on Lake Ontario, the St Lawrence, is bigger than HMS Victory. It's an enormous uh, three-deck battleship. So the Americans aren't coming out. How does the war finally come to an end? The war is ended uh, by classic British limited war strategy. That is, you defeat all of the enemy's attacking measures. You defend Canada, you defend the Atlantic shipping, you defend the West Indian uh, Sugar Islands, which are very important in commercial terms. And that's where a lot of this wealth is coming from that's being convoyed across the Atlantic. And then slowly, as Napoleon is defeated in Russia, and then critically, as he's defeated overall in late 1813, early 1814, as the Peninsular Army marches into France, and then Napoleon abdicates, the British have a choice. They could send a big army to America and invade America and punish the Americans and really drive them back. But a decision is taken to send not a big army to America, but a small army of about 8,000 men. And 4,000 of those go to the north, into Canada, and they take part in an operation to capture the northern half of the state of Maine. A very successful little operation, an American frigate is burnt, and most people in Maine couldn't care less who, who the government is, so they all swear allegiance and carry on doing what they've been doing all the way through the war, which is supplying the British. The British pay better than the Americans. So the North Americans, the peoples of the North of the United States, were actually still supplying Britain, despite the fact they're at war with them? Uh, pretty much the whole of New England didn't join in the war. Um, New Englanders voted federal, they didn't like the Republican government, and they didn't like the war. So, in the main, they didn't bother. Uh, the people of Vermont spent the entire war smuggling stuff into Canada. Um, they made a lot of money. Out. Uh, the British Army in Canada ate out of New England. 
the British army in the peninsula eight out of New England. The British didn't even blockade New England until 1814 because it was better to keep New Englanders doing trade with Britain than putting them into privateers. And the American government didn't try and stop this this trade going on. They didn't. Have, the American government didn't have the power to do this. Uh, they lacked the, both the legal authority and the manpower. Uh, and as these states were. You know, very, very heavily federalist in political terms, federalist governors, federalist voters, and commercial interests, they simply couldn't make them. They were thinking about doing it at the end of the war uh, because it was the only victory they were going to get. President Madison did think about invading Massachusetts because they were now the enemy. Uh, It didn't come to that. When the army is finally sent to North America, we get 4,000 extra troops into Canada. Before that, all the troops going to Canada had come from the West Indies. We didn't send troops from from the European theatre to defend Canada. We drew men out of the West Indies. But at the end of the war, there were still more British troops in the West Indies than there were in Canada. Because the West Indies had to be garrisoned against the possibility of uprisings and invasions. And the West Indian planters were far more important politically than Canada. The West Indies was the economic powerhouse. It absolutely was essential. The whole sugar, coffee, industries out of the West Indies, very, very important. The other 4,000 troops were taken straight into into Bermuda and then with little more than a quick run ashore at Bermuda, uh, they sail up into the Chesapeake Bay because the strategy of the offensive phase of the war, which is really only the last six months, is to take the war to the people who voted for it. And that's Virginia, Maryland, the Carolinas. Uh, These guys are the enemy. So that's where you go, into the Chesapeake Bay, huge... Uh, area of enclosed water and in 1813 uh, Admiral Coburn has been running that theatre has very skillfully used offensive operations from the sea to keep the Americans distracted and to work out what their weak points are so when the army of 4,000 men under Major General Robert Ross arrives uh, they literally get straight out of the ships into boats, they row up the Patuxent River and land, they then march 20 miles across the land to a place called Bladensburg where they defeat the American army, um, which then run, runs away. Uh, the president abandons Washington and the British army arrives that night in Washington and occupies it. Uh, we're talking about a force here of 4,000 men. Napoleon just got into Moscow with 600,000. The British got into Washington with 4,000. They ate the celebratory dinner that the president had laid on at his mansion, and then they burned the place down. And this burning of the White House is one of the sort of most symbolic moments of the war. It was. It, it, the whole point of burning the public buildings in Washington, not private buildings, they only burnt the public buildings, was A, to retaliate for the destruction of what is now Toronto, which was the, the seat of government in Lower Canada. Uh, but secondly to bring home to the American people that their government was incompetent to protect them, and that the the whole justification of government had broken down. The White House was burnt, the Capitol building, which was then only half built, was burnt down, um, and apparently you can still see the scorch marks in the basements of both buildings. Uh, was the only time that the American capital has ever been uh, attacked by, by a hostile force. Uh, the British then retreated calmly and coolly back to the river, got back in the boats and, and rejoined the fleet. Um, in the aftermath of that, there was a major run on the credit of the American government and nobody would lend it any money. And all Americans with any cash took their money out of the bank and bought British government bonds in Canada. 
So by October 1814, the United States government was bankrupt. And that's how you defeat enemies in a limited war. You bankrupt them, and then they can no longer function effectively. They couldn't pay their soldiers. They couldn't pay for the Navy. They couldn't pay for anything. So the Americans had no ability to fight much beyond that. So the British have the Americans exactly where they want them. What, what do we want the Americans to do? And the simple answer is the Americans were given the option, you can have status quo ante uh, or else. And the negotiations that were then going on at Ghent in Belgium, a city has to be noted entirely under British control. Uh, the British had garrisoned Belgium after, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. And the British negotiators there, who are not the A-team, the A-team are down in Vienna at the Congress trying to sort out the future of something far more important called Europe. And the Foreign Secretary Castlereagh passes through swiftly and says, tell them status quo ante or else, you know, that's it. And the Americans on Christmas Eve uh, 1814 accept those terms, basically straight back to where we were, no restitution, no territorial seizures, no indemnity, just it's over, it's finished. And so the whole war was completely unnecessary because where we start is where we end up. So who, if anyone, actually won this War of 1812? In terms of military, strategic and economic factors, the British win it convincingly, and the Americans are so aware of this that for the rest of the 19th century they spend the bulk of their defence funding on coastal fortifications. If you walk down the eastern seaboard of the United States, you will find very few small towns without a big fort. You know, and some of them, like New York, it's just a, you know, a history lesson in fortification. So the Americans are very, very well aware they've lost this war. But in public, the, the Republican government has to say, we won the war. But instead of saying, we tried to conquer Canada and failed, what they say is, this is the second war for independence. The British were going to reimpose their rule over us. Uh, this is entirely fraudulent, uh, but it's a political party, and as we all know, political parties don't often bother with simple things like factual accuracy. So the Americans create a version in which the War of 1812 was all about the British doing bad things and the Americans defending themselves. And the Canadians ultimately create a version in which it was about the Americans crossing the frontier and them driving them back. And the British create a version of the War of 1812, which is all about Napoleon marching to Moscow. And we just forget that this war ever happened. It really isn't of any great interest. In terms of the, the big scheme of things, more Russian soldiers died in one of the, in the Revsky Bastion at Borodino than were killed on both sides in the whole of the War of 1812. So for the British, it really was a sideshow. It didn't feel it's, like a... It's a sideshow, a complete sideshow. Um, it's highlighted by a few startling victories, a few rather embarrassing little defeats. Um, but it does give the British a new national hero. And they do win the war. But they're so busy celebrating the defeat of a far bigger enemy. Um, if you've just beaten Napoleon, why would you be bothered to celebrate defeating James Madison? You know, he, he's a small, rather pinched little man uh, of no great significance in the great scheme of things. Uh, Napoleon is, you know, is the most dynamic and important figure who's appeared in Europe for 500 years. Um, if you just won, a, if you've beaten Napoleon, that's the result. So the British War of 1812, uh, there's a brief kind of writing up. Uh, historian called William James writes of, uh, 
an excoriating account of how the American version of the war is just a, a, a tissue of fabrication and, and misrepresentation. And then it just goes away and the British forget, you know, absolutely forget. So for 200 years, this has not been a war that the British have made much of, with just one exception. The exception is the frigate battle between HMS Shannon and the USS Chesapeake on June the 1st, 1813, which happened about 25 miles off Boston. And the Americans had won those first three frigate battles. They were very unequal battles, but the Americans had won them, and this gave them a kind of propaganda initiative, and they could say, look, we've taken on the world's greatest navy, and we've beaten them, so, you know, we must be the best. And the British knew this wasn't true, and so did the Americans. Uh, the American government refused to pay the captain of the United States um, the full prize share that he would have got for taking a ship of equal force because it was he made the mistake of bringing the ship home and it was quite clearly quite smaller. So the Shannon Chesapeake action, it pits two ships which are of the same size and of the same rate and they have the same number of guns on board. The Americans have a few more crew but it's, you know, essentially these are the same animals and they meet in combat outside America's major naval base and unlike the three battles of 1812 which take two or three hours to finish this is all over in 11 minutes uh, the American captain James Lawrence who's a brave aggressive and, and hitherto very successful officer um, comes into battle determined and expecting to win but he's picked the wrong man to fight uh, the Shannons commanded by Captain Philip Brooke who is um, I think a monomaniac would probably describe him well. He is obsessed with the accurate fire of guns, with the precise tactical control of battle, and he's dreamt about this moment for the previous seven years in command of the same ship. And he has this ship exactly in the order he wants it. It's a well-oiled machine and everybody knows exactly what they're doing. So there's none of the confusion and chaos that you get in normal battles. Uh, this is the beginning of modern naval service. Everybody knows their job, everybody's well trained, everybody does their job without making any noise. This is a, everybody's listening for orders. The battle is decided very early because Brooke has trained his men to take out the American, or the enemy's ship's wheel, uh, the enemy officers who'll be standing close by the ship's wheel and critical parts of the rigging. So the ship is without command, it can't be steered, uh, and the sails can't be used effectively. And that's two broadsides, that's less than a minute. Uh, the guns on the main deck of the Shannon have effectively annihilated the American gun crews, so they can't fire back very effectively. The ship is out of control, unmanageable, and it runs aboard the Shannon. Uh, Brooke then boards the ship, sword in hand, clear the upper deck, and the Americans are driven below deck and forced to surrender. So 11 minutes. This is the fastest and, by a long margin, the most costly um, battle of its type ever fought. Um, two ships commanded by officers who were convinced they were going to win, with crews in very good order. The American sh crew was very good, uh, they just weren't good enough. Um, against most British ships they would have done quite well, but the Shannon was no ordinary ship. And this battle ends with the American captain is mortally wounded, he dies six days later. Brooke has his skull smashed open with a cutlass, but he lives. And he comes home as to be a, become the national hero of this war. And he becomes the, the poster boy of, of modern naval service. You know, the idea of professional gunnery, trained men, 
the, the wholly new way of doing things. He's the figure that transforms the Navy of Nelson into the Navy of the late Victorian era. He's the, the critical figure. And that one battle is the one event of the whole war that everybody agrees really is worth fighting about. And it really is just an exemplary demonstration yeah. of professionalism, skill, courage, commitment. And to their credit, the Americans have, have never denied that they lost the battle, although initially they pretended it wasn't their fault. They flogged the black bugler for not blowing his bugle hard enough to summon up the, uh, the boarding party. Um, and then they wrote an account in which the, there was a Portuguese boatswain on board and it was for some reason his fault. There doesn't seem to have been any Portuguese boatswain, but they certainly did flog the, flog the black bugler uh, because uh, there was a rather unpleasant habit of blaming people who were not capable of looking after themselves. So it's a battle which has entered the, the iconography of naval warfare as, as the single most startling event of its type. And Brooke lived for many more years, but Lawrence was buried at Halifax. He was then taken to Salem and buried there, and he ended up being buried in New York. Uh, so he got three funerals of, of increasing glory and magnitude, and he's now in Trinity Churchyard just across the road from Wall Street. Um, if you go to Wall Street, there's a vast canyon of skyscrapers, and there in the middle of it is a little 19th century church, and there right outside the, the main entrance is Lawrence's memorial. So he had three funerals, and he then ended up at his last burial place with two different funeral markers because the first one collapsed, and he had to have a second uh, funeral marker. So it gave the American Navy um, an iconic hero and also an iconic expression. Uh, the American Navy's motto is don't give up the ship and that's what James Lawrence said um, as his ship was surrendering. So it's a rather odd motto. You know, It wasn't the motto of a man doing something successful. The ship had been lost and he was you know, already mortally wounded and he, you know, he, he said the right thing but um, it was too late and, and they did give up the ship and the, the Chesapeake was brought back to England and she was later demolished and her timbers were used to build a water mill at West Wickham in Hampshire, just outside Portsmouth. And it's still there. You can visit the Chesapeake mill and you can see the timbers that were in this battle. Uh, some of them have still got grape shot in them. And at the end of the war, the, the American flagship, the USS President, was captured in a battle off New York. Uh, again, an exemplary piece of seamanship, two very skilled officers with very good ship's companies. Uh, you know, it really is a, a master class in naval warfare. Again, the, the British ship is, is successful. The president is brought home, and she is the great trophy of the war. This is a ship named for the office of the chief magistrate of the American state. And it was originally um, honoured George Washington, who was the president. Uh, but it stood for the office. Uh, the British brought it home and they built a replica which they kept for many years and sailed around the world and used to impress the Americans. Um, in the 1830s, the Americans were being difficult about the Canadian frontier, so we sent to George Coburn, the man who burned the White House, in HMS president to command on the American station. And eventually the president becomes the headquarters of the Royal Naval Reserve Unit in London and it was originally moored on the Thames Embankment. And the name survives, and HMS President is still the headquarters of the Naval Reserve in London. It's now a, what we call a stone frigate. It's a, it's a building just past the, the tower. Uh, but that name is straight from the USS President. 
It's a prize name from the American flagship. And if you're in the building and you walk between the cloakroom and the bar, you will see pictures of this battle. You know, that's why that name is, is still on the Royal Navy's list. The Americans never used the name President again. No ship has ever been named after the office of President. They've named ships after President, but not after the office. So it's a war that ends with a succession of devastating blows to the Americans. Their capital city is burnt, financial system collapses, their armies are defeated, um, their flagship is taken, the blockade is, is increasingly gripping and, and squashing their economy. Uh, and yet, when the British raiding party is defeated outside New Orleans, um, after the war is over, uh, you'd think the Americans had won the war. So the American history of the war is three frigate victories in 1812 and the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. And the rest of the war, they sort of brush over quite nicely. Is, is this still the official view of American historians nowadays? Is that what they're going to be saying on the 200th anniversary? The best American historians have a much more uh, sophisticated view of the War of 1812, and they understand that this was a misguided war which didn't end well. Uh, but if you read a lot of American high school textbooks, uh, yes, the Americans did win the War of 1812 quite handsomely. It was the Second War of Independence. It was started by the British. Um, and it was about those maritime causes. Uh, that just isn't the case. The United States was a highly aggressive power looking for more land. They invaded Florida before they invaded Canada, then Spanish. Um, they would eventually invade Florida again in 1819 and keep it. And then in the early 1840s, they invaded Mexico and took away huge swathes of what was Mexican territory. So this was a country bent on extending its territorial empire. That isn't the same as a country defending its maritime rights. Those are two different things. And the Republican continentalist approach becomes the defining cultural model of America. America is a vast continental state. America in 1783 is a small maritime republic. By 1817, it's a semi-continental land power. It's not a maritime power. And America's interests have been much more continental ever since. So the War of 1812, uh, some historians have described it as, a, as the first civil war. The Americans are split. The Northeast wants to go one way, the center and the South wants to go another way, and the South wins. And the Southerners won the War of 1812. They got much more land to extend plantation slavery. Uh, they, did, they removed the Native Americans from east of the Mississippi. Uh, they destroyed the Native Americans in the north. Uh, this was the, the Southerners and Westerners' victory, and it set up that compromise which dominated American politics until 1861, in which the, the slave and non-slave states had a kind of equilibrium in the political process. And it was not until Lincoln breaks that logjam that the South is finally put back under the control of the center. But the, the great heroes of this war for the Americans are people like Andrew Jackson, uh, who spent most of the war defeating the Indians. And then goes on to become president not that long afterwards. He got to be president because uh, he won the battle in the South that destroyed the last vestiges of, of Native American power. Um, Horseshoe Bend is the, is the decisive victory of the War of 1812 for the Americans because it, it breaks the power um, of organized Native American resistance. The man who won the battle in the North, uh, Battle of the Thames that defeated the Northern uh, Native American Confederacy, William Henry Harrison, he also gets to be president. So, um, 200 years later, what would you say is the main legacy of this War of 1812? 
The main legacy of the War of 1812 is that there are three states uh, bounding the North Atlantic which came together in two world wars to ensure that the things they shared, uh, democratic politics, liberal or free trading arrangements, uh, and um, in the larger sense, um, upholding of international law, uh, would prevail in the global struggle uh, against totalitarian powers who didn't. Um, had the War of 1812 been more serious, had it been a more bitter and divisive struggle, um, that might not have been the case. Uh, had the British had any intention of damaging the United States at the end of this war again, it might have caused longer lasting problems. Um, the availability of British North America, increasingly self-governing as Canada, provided a, a connection between the two. It was always an easy thing for Americans to march into Canada. It was just very difficult for them to keep it. And increasingly, the Americans realized that Canada wasn't America, wouldn't occupy Canada just because it was next door. And the success of the British in the War of 1812 meant that the Americans throughout the 19th century understood that invading Canada would lead to a massive economic blockade, which would destroy their economy. So the British never had any need to defend Canada with soldiers. They defended it with the Navy. And it tells us a great deal about how the British Empire functioned strategically. The British never have the military power to defeat other great nations. There is, the British Army is a very small organization. You know, marching on Washington was accidental. You know, was, the Americans had got all of their troops on the Canadian frontier, uh, so it was possible to do this. The British were always going to have to fight these limited wars using the, the Navy, economic blockade, long drawn out wars. And this war is a perfect example of how the British secure their ends. They, they want nothing radical. They don't want America. They don't want any American territory. They just want to be left alone to get on with business. And if you interfere with business, the British will fight you. Uh, if you behave yourselves, they'll trade with you. And the Americans learned this lesson. There, there was lots of talk, but there was never any threat of a, of a war between Britain and America after this. Uh, even in the American Civil War, there was a, a major crisis, but the Americans understood perfectly well that it was entirely unnecessary to fight the British. And it would be a question of passion rather than of common sense. And President Lincoln famously said we should have one war at a time and decided not to fight the British. Even in 1914, when the First World War starts, the American President Woodrow Wilson is enormously impressed with the notion that in 1812 the Americans were on the wrong side. They were fighting with Napoleon against the British. American France never allies, but they were certainly on, you know, they were fighting the common enemy. And he was determined that America would not be on the same side as the Germans in the First World War. And, and so, you know, it, it, helps to, it helps to make that decision, which in 1914 is not as easy as it is in 1939, uh, of whose side America is on in the war. Uh, there's a very large German uh, and Irish communities in, in America who are vociferously anti-British for different reasons. And it wouldn't have been impossible to imagine America being more pro-German in 1914, which would have been a very serious problem. But Wilson is determined that the Germans are in the wrong, we must not be on the same side as the Germans, and therefore, when we view what the British and the Germans are doing, we have to understand that the British must prevail. Britain and France is the future, not Germany. So the war really establishes a relationship 
uh, initially in a negative sense, but increasingly in a positive sense, in which these two increasingly different peoples understand that their common interests uh, override everything else. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That was Andrew Lambert. You can read his article in the May edition of BBC History magazine. Plus, his book, The Challenge, Britain Against America in the Naval War of 1812, has recently been published by Faber. This year sees the 40th anniversary of the World Heritage Convention, which began the process of defining and protecting sites of outstanding cultural or natural heritage around the globe. Since that time, 936 locations have been awarded UNESCO World Heritage status, with more being added all the time. I got the chance to speak to Kishore Rao, director of the UNESCO World Heritage Centre, to find out how places are selected for World Heritage status and what threats they may face in the future. How does a site get chosen to have World Heritage status? Uh, The uh, site is chosen on the basis of nominations that are submitted by a country which is signatory to the World Heritage Convention. As you know, as of uh, now, there are 189 countries that have signed on to the World Heritage Convention, and uh, it is only the countries who can submit nominations. But even before submitting the nominations for inscriptions onto the sites, each country is required to prepare what are called tentative lists or inventories of uh, both cultural and natural heritage in their country, which they feel would meet the standards of World Heritage Inscription. And from these tentative lists, they then prepare detailed nomination dossiers and submit them to UNESCO. Uh, There is a cutoff date each year. By 1st of February each year, the nominations have to come in. And then UNESCO checks uh, these nominations for completeness, sends them on to 
technical advisory bodies. There are two advisory bodies, independent advisory bodies. For natural heritage, it is IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature. And for cultural heritage, it is ECOMOS, the International Council on Monuments and Sites, which is Paris-based. And these uh, advisory bodies evaluate these nominations, including going on a mission to the site, speaking to various stakeholders. And this whole process takes about 18 months. Then they submit their recommendations to UNESCO, which presents them to the Intergovernmental World Heritage Committee. This committee is an intergovernmental body comprising of uh, 21 uh, elected members from among these 189 states parties. And they meet annually once uh, a year and uh, they take a decision based on the recommendations whether or not a site has outstanding universal value and measures up to the standards of World Heritage uh, listing. So this is uh, quite a detailed and rigorous process which uh, uh, results in the selection of World Heritage sites. Approximately how many sites get added on each year to the list? On an average about uh, 20 I would say. You talked about the, the value of the heritage there. I mean, what kind of a place would get World Heritage status? Does it need to be a certain size or a certain age? How do you decide how important somewhere is? No, there are very specific uh, criteria that are uh, prescribed under the operational guidelines of the convention. Uh, for example, um, they, they have to be, you know, masterpieces of human creative genius or, or, or a place that uh, uh, exemplifies interchange of cultures over time and space, groups of buildings, historic cities, cultural landscapes, areas important from biodiversity perspectives, uh, habitats of endangered and endangered uh, endemic species, they could be outstanding geological and natural sites. So there are a whole range of criteria, 10 criteria to be specific, uh, which have to be demonstrated. And linked to these criteria are also conditions of authenticity and integrity. So there are very, uh, very detailed uh, technical evaluation parameters that the advisory bodies uh, uh, use to be able to make an assessment and judge the uh, outstanding universal value of a particular site. And if a site gets World Heritage status, what benefits come with that? Obviously, the uh, the benefits are very many, uh, ranging from uh, you know the, the the fact that uh, uh, your history, your identity, your uh, heritage has been recognised. So there is an element of uh, pride, uh, national pride, and cultural and historical pride that comes with it. Uh, there is also the uh, assurance of uh, uh, exemplary management being followed for preservation of that particular site because World Heritage sites are the ones that are uh, uh, every year they have to be uh, uh, monitored to be able to ensure that the values for which they were inscribed uh, continue to be maintained. Uh, and uh, this is an obligation and a responsibility on the country that presents the nomination. So this is something that they have to abide by. And then there are other which are uh, more, I say, socioeconomic in terms of uh, jobs being created, uh, businesses being revived, uh, a lot of tourism taking place, arts and handicrafts being uh, sold. So there are a lot of uh, benefits, for example, in 
the case of Australia, they carried out a study in uh, 2007 of all their, at that time, 17 World Heritage Sites, and they found that their contribution to the economy was of the order of 12 billion Australian dollars at that time, and had resulted in the creation of 120,000 jobs. So, these are the kinds of benefits that uh, accrue from uh, World Heritage Inscription. But over and above that, you know, the very uh, rationale for this convention is that there are places uh, on earth, both cultural and natural, which have values, uh, which have values which transcend na national boundaries. So it is the duty of the international community as a whole to come together and cooperate through a system of international cooperation to protect these sites for humanity as a whole, not just for the country. So the, that's why the uh, the notion of outstanding universal value is there. And moreover, the second aspect is the aspect of intergen generational equity. That means uh, the heritage is important not only for the present generation, but for future generations as well. So it is the duty and obligation of the international community to protect these outstanding and exceptional places uh, for uh, forever. Um, and what kind of threats are there to these sites? Are any of them in any danger at the moment? Oh, many. Uh, in fact, uh, under the convention, there is the World Heritage List, which has currently 936 sites. And uh, a subset of that is called the World Heritage in Danger List. At the moment, there are 35 sites on them, uh, on that list, uh, which are uh, threatened by... Uh, ascertained and imminent uh, threats and dangers and these range from a whole range of socio-economic activities, uh, uh, conflict, uh, natural disaster which have uh, resulted in them being put on the danger list and once it is put on the danger list uh, it is prioritized for uh, uh, financing uh, from UNESCO as well as from other bilateral and multilateral sources. The committee prescribes a set of uh, corrective measures and certain benchmarks to be achieved in order for these threats to be mitigated and then the site is taken off the danger list. So uh, it, it, these uh, threats could be um, you know, public works, for example, highways and uh, uh, dam projects and uh, mining operations or in historic cities, these could be some tall buildings which change uh, the nature of the historic character of the, of the city. Uh, in, the, in the case of natural sites, it could be uh, you know, illegal logging, encroachments, uh, poaching of wildlife. So a whole range of threats are uh, acting upon uh, heritage sites and that is why the convention has the system of monitoring them, their state of conservation on a regular basis. And obviously, um, when a place gets World Heritage status, that will increase the amount of tourism to the site. But can that tourism ever be a threat to conservation? Yes, uh, tourism is both an opportunity as well as a threat. If tourism is not maintained uh, and managed in a sustainable manage, um, manner, if a visitation to the site is not planned, uh, you know, in a proper proper manner, public use uh, planning uh, principles are not uh, followed, it could very well be a threat, you know. And that is what uh, we constantly warn uh, people uh, about: that uh, you you should not be, you know, killing the golden the goose that lays the golden egg. Uh, kind of situation. So, yes, tourism is uh, definitely a, a tremendous opportunity, uh, but uh, has to be sustainably managed. And that's why we at UNESCO uh, World Heritage Center, we have principles and guidelines and uh, um, uh, best practice guidance to uh, World Heritage Sites on how to organize, uh, and manage and conduct uh, tourism at World Heritage Sites. 
Over the past 40 years, what would you say are the biggest achievements of the sort of, of this UNESCO list? Uh, obviously, I mean, over the 40 years, there is a, a lot to be uh, uh, proud about. Uh, the fact that uh, over 900 uh, World Heritage uh, sites have been uh, recognized um, uh, and uh, protected and managed effectively to be passed on to future generations is in itself a, a tremendous uh, uh, achievement. Uh, at the same time, of course, there are all these challenges of of uh, development and uh, you know de decay and neglect uh, over time uh, because of uh, lack of uh, capacities and lack of management uh, ability, lack of resources, lack of uh, training, and so on and so forth. Uh, there are there are a tremendous amount of challenges that are impacting on the uh, effective implementation of the World Heritage Program. Climate change was not a concern for many years, but uh, uh, now in recent past climate change is another additional factor that is impacting on the conservation of sites. So uh, that, is, that is the kind of uh, program that we have, that we take uh, stock of uh, the conservation and respond to the new and emerging challenges uh, and build capacities in countries so, so that they can manage their heritage uh, more effectively. Do you think there, there are still a lot of sites out there still waiting to be added to the list? Yes, if you look at the tentative list uh, of uh, all the countries who are signatories to the World Heritage Convention, there are a very large number of sites. Obviously, not all these uh, tentative list, uh, list sites are going to get inscribed on, onto the World Heritage List. But as long as there are sites out there which uh, uh, conform to the uh, criteria and values of the convention, uh, they meet the test of outstanding universal value, uh, I think uh, it is the duty of countries uh, uh, to recognize them and uh, get them inscribed as World Heritage List. So yes, they, they, they would definitely be sites out there. And as we can see from the nominations that come in every year, uh, of course, not all of them are successful for various reasons. But um, uh, the fact that there is this uh, ongoing uh, reflection on uh, uh, the gaps on the World Heritage List. There are uh, studies that are carried out by these expert organizations and bodies which have identified uh, under various thematic groupings different kinds of uh, sites that uh, merit inclusion on the World Heritage List so that there is a, a, a a number that would certainly we cannot place a place a limit to what this uh, number might be ultimately but uh, as of now there are definitely many more sites that uh, merit inscription on the world heritage list that was kishore rao director of the unesco world heritage center you can find out more about the world heritage list at whc.unesco.org Plus, the new edition of The World's Heritage, an illustrated guide to all of the 936 UNESCO sites, has recently been published by Collins. Now here in the UK, we'll soon be gearing up to commemorate the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II. In recognition of that, the third in our BBC History magazine Tower of London lecture series brings together two historians to discuss the reigns of the two Elizabeths, the Tudor Elizabeth I and the current Elizabeth II. Anna Whitelock and Kate Williams will be considering their lives and queenships in this lecture. The event is on the 14th of June, and if you want to come along, a limited number of tickets are still available. Go to historyextra.com forward slash tower lecture for more on that. Well, that's about it for this episode. We will return next week when we'll be talking about royal pageants and Icelandic sagas. 
And in the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries, and much more. And don't forget, you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and the Apple newsstand, respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced, as ever, by Dave Gibson. Thank you.